right. Um, if you will, please turn a copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, uh, excuse me, 15. Genesis 15. Uh, listen attentively, hear now, for this is God's Word. Genesis 15, starting at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall ye give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We thank you for the wonderful truths contained in this passage. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to be attentive and to be grown in a deeper understanding of the gospel. O oh Lord, strengthen our faith. Let us see Jesus more clearly, sir. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, I've answered some pretty important questions in my life, and I imagine you have too. Right? Uh, will you have this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? I love that one. Will you take this job? I like that one too. The implied question I didn't like when I signed my mortgage. Will you pay each month? Right? I've done that twice now. Um, who reads that stuff anyway? For the first time in Scripture, we are given explicitly the answer to what is perhaps the most important question of all time. How is man saved? Now, we've seen saved people before this. I fully expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven. I'd I intend on the Lord changing my heart because I really want to sucker punch both Adam and Eve that I imagine He'll change me before I get to them. We're, we're told rather explicitly that there were people of faith before we get to Abram. Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, we're given explicitly the names of, of Abel and Enoch and Noah, people all before Abram lived, long before Abram lived. But, you know, just like when you tell a story, you have to go back. Okay, before I go on, I need to tell you this part. Or i got to circle back around. I have to explain it a little bit more. That's what happens in this text. It's not that there weren't people saved before this by faith, right? That's how we're saved. That's how anybody's ever been saved, Old Testament and New. Uh, we're just explicitly told for the first time in Genesis 15 how it worked. And guess what? It's the same way it works with us. Now, commentators always like to say one of two things on their passages. One, this is the most difficult passage in all of Scripture. I can tell you at least 20 passages in Scripture that commentators say are the most difficult passage in Scripture. And the second one is this is the most important passage in all of Scripture. And I can tell you about 100 of those. Uh, this one, however, it really might be it. The most important passage in all of Scripture. Because it sets the tone it tells us, it establishes how it happens, how man is made right with God, and it's not by being a good person or doing good works or being better than your neighbor. Rather, it is trusting in God. We are saved through faith. 
So we get it all the way back in Genesis 15. We're going to look at this passage upside down. We're going to look at it at verse 6 first, then we're going to go back through 1 through 5. We're going to see how Abram was saved, and we're going to see the impact of how he is saved and the relationship that he has with God, the in, impact on his interaction with God in verses 1 through 5. So we're going to start at, at verse 6. But, you know, this question of how was man made right with the holy living God, how was he saved, it's a question that, that every religion seeks to answer. It really is the purpose of religion. Now, there's one true religion. Let me be real clear on that. But every religion uh, grapples with this idea. Some of them declare that guilt's just a, a made-up thing, like a lot of the Eastern, um, Eastern religions of Buddhism, Hinduism. But they spend a lot of ink telling you that those feelings of guilt that you have, those aren't real. Right? That's their solution. <laughs> I think we do that a lot in America, don't we? Oh, no, no, it's not real. Don't worry about it. Or, right, many, many religions say if you just uh, follow a set number of rules, then you'll be good. Or I think the one that seems to be the common religion of America, of, of the Western world, is if just if you have more good works than bad works, then you're good and you'll get to heaven. I once asked this question. Uh, we, have, we support something called the Brute Benevolence Fund. It's a great organization. Uh, we support it, a lot of the churches do, and we help with people with overdue bills once a month. We'll, we'll actually meet this next Tuesday. Uh, and I always do, I normally do the devotion before we start taking applications. And, uh, and so I asked one time, I said, so how many good works does it take to make up for one sin? And y'all, I thought we were going to have a wrestling match right there at City Hall. I mean, the Civic Center could have been a bloodbath because they, they were arguing between was it one or was it three, four, five, six, or seven? No one said it doesn't work like that. I wanted to cry. Finally, they seemed to come to a compromise of two. Uh, apparently, it takes two good works to make up for one sin. Now, lest you don't know this, it doesn't work like that. I, I want to disabuse you of this thought. You cannot make up for bad things with good things, because even our good things are tainted with sin. I, I, we have a communicants class, and we were talking about, you know, what if you made... What, what did we make? Was it sweet tea, I think, that we put the cyanide in? Do you remember? What did, was it sweet tea we were talking? EK, EK, what was it? Cereal, that's what it was. If you, if you make a big bowl of cereal, right, with the absolute best cereal and the best milk, and then you put a drop of cyanide in it, what is it going to do to that cereal? It's going to poison. It's going to kill you. That's right. Amen. Uh, and that's how even our good works are. And so it's, it's not a matter of doing more good works than bad. Or, or even better, being better than your neighbor. See, the innate sense of guilt that God has given to all people is a mercy of God. It is a good thing. Romans 1 and 2, it, it's going to spend a lot of time talking about this, that, that no matter whether you're a Christian or not, there is something inside of you, the law of God, that you know that you're guilty, especially when you violate your own conscience, when you say you shouldn't do this and you do it. Right? Even if you don't have the written law of God, just that alone condemns us. But it's a mercy of God. It's like a thermometer or a sensor to indicate to us that there's something wrong below the surface, indeed in our very souls, that's in need of fixing. So we back up in Genesis and we see that God created all things by the word of His power in the space of six 24-hour days, and He made it all perfectly. And our spiritual parents, however, 
Adam and Eve, they turned their backs on God and His holy commandment and the perfect relationship that they enjoyed with God by sinning. And when this happened, they were no longer righteous, but unrighteous. They traded righteousness for unrighteousness. And they became spiritually dead. And out of their broken relationship with God and out of their spiritual deadness and out of their unrighteous hearts came actual sins, flowed unrighteous deeds. And and the guilt from these deeds continued to add up the moral debt, which ultimately was taken on the cross, which they, like we, are unable to pay. And so the question is, how can we be saved? How can can this thing that exists between us and God, our unrighteousness, be dealt with? What they deserve, we deserve. Spiritual death. Separation from God. Punishment forever in hell. But the best word in all of Scripture is a three-letter word, and it's the word... We're Presbyterians, but you can talk. Uh, It's the word but, right? The word but, but God. See, we immediately see God's graciousness and His love for those who rebelled against Him, and God saves His people. Amen. He has dealt with this fundamental problem that is completely on our side of the relationship. We're the problem. Because of the problem, we can't be the solution. But He has provided the answer. He has provided the payment for our sin in His Son, Jesus This is what happened on the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sins, the record of our sin, right? He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of a debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by what? By nailing it to the cross. The question then, how do we receive this? If this is what he has done, how are we connected to it? Is it by being good? Is it by church attendance? I told our our communicants class, you can be at McDonald's and it doesn't make you a French fry, right? You can be in a garage and it doesn't make you a car. You can be in church, praise God you're in church, be at church, it doesn't make you a Christian. Is it about being better than other people? Is it by giving money to the poor, just being better than those around us? How? And this is the answer we get in verse 6, all the way back in Genesis. Long time ago, y'all, long time ago. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. It's an amazing grace that there's any way for our unrighteousness to be dealt with, for us to be counted as righteous, right? It's an amazing gift of God. And yet here our spiritual father, Abram, is counted as righteous, not because he's good, Right? In fact, he was quite unrighteous. Ask Sarai. Do you remember when he sold her down the river? Right? Pharaoh? Do you remember that? Oh, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Right? Ask Pharaoh and Sarai to see how upstanding a guy this is. That was after he'd been converted. We'll get to that in a minute. He was an unrighteous guy on the ground. And so are we, right? If you look at the record of my debt that Christ has nailed to the cross, I still struggle with sin, don't you? And daily I have to do business with God. And that's after I've been saved. No, it wasn't because he was righteous. Rather, because of God's grace. See, he was unrighteous, but in God's eyes, he was righteous. This was, means to be counted. Other translations say reckoned is an accounting or legal term. 
See, we, we have, and Abram did too, this, this great debt running into the gazillions. And, and it continues to grow, to accrue interest every day, and we keep adding to it. But that's no longer on the books in God's accounting ledger. That's no longer on the books, our debt. But see, he didn't take an eraser and just wipe it out. He didn't take the white out. He didn't tear out that page. See, sin had to be dealt with. The moral debt, it, had to, it couldn't just be wiped off. It had to be paid. And see, rather, he took our sins and put them on the account of someone else, of the one whom he loved more than any other, his only begotten, his beloved son. Jesus took care of the tremendous bill. And then God took his pen and wrote next to our name, under assets, see Jesus. See, there was a transfer. Jesus got the record of our sin, and we got the record of Jesus' righteousness. And this is what happened to Abram. And the question is, how? How? How did it get connected? There's a show. Have you ever seen it called How It's Made? I love this show. I like to watch it a lot in college. My roommates hated it, which made me like it all the more. But I love how it's made because it tells you, I know it's hard to fathom, it's tell you how things are made, and it explains how they work. And so it takes something that you don't know how it's made, how it works, how did they make that thing? And it tells you. Well, this is kind of what's going on here. How, how was the, these verses 1 through 5 demonstrate an intimate relationship between God and Abram? How did he get that relationship with the one from, with whom he was separated by his sin? Something happened. What does it say? And he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice the text does not say that he gave X number of dollars to the United Way or volunteered Y number of hours at the soup kitchen. Or is better than Z number of people around them. He simply believed. What does it mean to believe? To, to believe is more than just knowledge. It's more than just knowing about God. I, I like to say that um, the youngest child who, who is a Christian knows more about the Bible than an unbelieving professor who has a PhD in it, right? Because he knows the God who wrote it. And he has the Holy Spirit to help him understand it. More than just knowledge of facts and figures, but to know God. And so to, to trust, to believe in a godly sense, in a biblical sense, in a saving sense, is not just to know something, but to know that it is true. And to trust in it. Uh, you remember Mark Jessup? He used to be our assistant pastor. I love this illustration. I'll never forget it. He said, saving faith is, is, what, is like what a parachutist does when they jump out of an airplane. What are they trusting in? Their parachute. They trust in anything else? Nope. Not their wings? Oh, they don't have those. Not, not their arms flapping? Right? Trusting alone in Christ. The saving faith means to know that this is true, what Christ has done, and though we deserve hell, Christ freely offers salvation to those who repent and put their faith in Him. But lest we think that this faith is what saves us, let's be very careful how we say these things. Faith is not what saves us. Who saves you? Jesus. Jesus saves us. Faith is the open hand which receives the gift that is freely offered to those who trust in Christ. 
And we learn in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, that even faith itself is a gift from God. And there's no reason to boast. It's not of our own doing. It's not our own works. It is given to us. Did, did you know that, um, that Abram was saved by Jesus? I love this. That Abram was saved by Jesus' blood. Even though Jesus hadn't come yet. He was looking forward to what we look back to. God is outside of time. He trusts in the Lord all in, and God saved and forgave him and declared him righteous. He did this by his grace. You know what grace is? It's giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. In his mercy, he didn't give us hell. In his grace, he gave us life. He gave us eternal life, that which we did not deserve. Reconciliation with the Father. We know so much more than Abram knew, but we're saved the same way. Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. These all died in faith, talking about all these people in the um, hall of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, right? But having seen them and greeted them from, from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Again, in Galatians 3.6, just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Quoted again in Romans chapter 4 and Habakkuk 2. It's all over Scripture. What about you? Are you one of the spiritual children of Abram, of Abraham? See, he's the father of all those who believe, who trust in what Christ has done, his descendant. Have you been made right with the one and living God? You've answered a lot of hard questions and important questions in your lives, some of them legally binding, but the question is, have you answered the most important one? Well, before we go look at verses 1 through 5, let me just say that I've often wondered how we get to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which looks like Abram's conversion, doesn't it? And he believed God was accounted to him righteous. God has given him these promises, and therefore he believed, and now he's saved. I mean, but how do we deal with Genesis chapter 12, where we find Abram calling on the name of the Lord? How do we deal with Hebrews chapter 11 that says it was out of faith that Abram left his homeland to go to the promised land? How do we deal with, uh, with, with, Gen- with, um, with Abram uh, not just calling the name of the Lord, but proclaiming the word of the Lord? Well, it's because... This describes the kind of faith that he already had. This is not chronological. Verse 6 is an explanation of why this was true of Abram. We see great faith in verses 1 through 5. And then we learn why. Something had happened to him. He had been converted. And it's recorded in verse 6. Remember how we talked about when you tell a story, sometimes you circle back around? And that's what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing. He's circling back around to tell us what kind of faith Abram had. Well, you know, when we are saved, converted, rescued, you know, we use these illustrations of accounting and legal terms, and these are helpful ways to think about our need for salvation, the salvation offered in Christ. But we're not saved by an accountant. If you're an accountant, thank you. We're not saved by a banker. If you're a banker, thank you. We are saved by God. And we are saved not just from something, but for something. And the for something is fellowship with God forever and ever for His glory and our enjoyment. And so we are saved into a relationship. It's not an impersonal thing. The Father personally sent His personal Son 
into this world. And the, pers- the second person of the Trinity died bodily for you and really did rise from the dead. And so we are saved into this relationship. And you know, when you're saved into a relationship, it's going to, uh, that how that relationship comes about is going to determine the enjoyment of that relationship. And if we are saved by faith based on His grace, then we have an amazing relationship with God that is based on His love and grace for us. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 5. Right. Verse 1 says, um, and these thing, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, we took two Sundays to look at it, but this follows uh, Abram's defeat of the four kings who had come from uh, beyond the Promised Land. And they had come and they had uh, wiped out I mean, just whole sections of the area. And one group in particular, these five kings who had rebelled against them by the Dead Sea, including Sodom, uh, they had come and destroyed them, and they were taking a great train of hostages, or excuse me, captives, back to where they lived, who faced forced enslavement, forced marriage, and and or uh, worse. And so Abram uh, was given victory by God over uh, these forces where he went and he rescued Lot, his nephew, and their family and brought them back. Now you can imagine, if you've just defeated a large, or at least a portion of a large army, are, are they just going to let that go? Probably not. Abram seems to have been afraid. Have you ever been afraid? And so God, his personal God, his personal Savior came and said the same thing he tells you and me. Don't be afraid. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Right? I'm going to protect you. Great will be your reward, which raises a problem. There's tension here. Abram has received so many blessings that God, by his grace, has promised to him in Genesis 12, 1 through, th- 1 through 3. Right? He's, he, while he doesn't own the promised land, he's living in it, and he seems to have uh, dominion over it and blessing by God. God is blessing those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He, he is a very wealthy man, but what's the one thing this old man who's married to an older woman, or she's not older than him, but an older woman, what's the one thing that they don't have that is the most important thing to them? That they give everything up for, and it's an heir. It's a son. It's a child. And so, remember, this is a relationship. One that seems to be uh, one in which Abram is cherished and loved and valued by the God who made all things, who has saved him ultimately by the blood of his son, Jesus. And what does Abram do? He raises an objection. In two verses over, it seemed like, he, he comes back around. He, he's going to say it once and he's going to say it again. And he raises this, this question, O Lord God, but what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my household is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, give, give me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. What do you make of these questions? Is it okay to ask God questions like this? You know, it all depends on how we ask questions. It makes a big difference. If, if I started out with, um, if, well, let me, let me back up for a second. Um, 
I was working on this sermon uh, Friday at a um, sushi joint down in Pensacola. It's a good place to write a sermon. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the sushi guy was right in front of me. He pulled out this huge chunk of tuna, which was slicing away on it. And over to the left of me uh, sat down this really rude couple, super rude couple. Uh, they, they walked in and they had their they were they were Zoom calling someone on full volume in the restaurant restaurant and were yelling back and forth and there was cussing involved. I was like, man, this is great. I'm writing a sermon. And then they asked a really rude question of the, uh, of the waitress. Now, it, the question wasn't rude. It was about the price of something. It was how they asked it. Is it wrong to ask about the price of something being sold? Of course not. But God gave grace to that waitress, and she didn't respond in kind. How is Abram asking here? It's a place of faith and submission. How do we know that? Because he uses a phrase here, a title of God, that's really important. You'll notice in your text that it's uh, Lord and then all caps God. And this is translating the Hebrew phrase Adonai Yahweh. Adonai is Lord, Master, uh, Sovereign. Yahweh is God's personal name. It is the most submissive name of God in Scripture, or rather the one that we submit to God in Scripture. My God, Yahweh, the one who has saved me, He is Lord and Master of all things, including my life, including all that I am, including uh, my wife's barrenness. He's in charge of all things. So He comes out of a place of faith and submission. See, he's been saved by grace, not based on anything he has done. He has called on the name of the Lord, and he's been given this new reconciled relationship with the God who made all things, a loving relationship. And in his love, he has questions. Lord, what about this thing you told me? You think it's okay to ask those kind of questions of God? If I went to Christy and I said, hey, babe, uh, I got a question. That's different than me saying, hey, you, I got a question. Right? You, you see the difference there? Might involve where I sleep that night. You know, the, the re- <laughs> if we come to God out of faith, we can ask Him the questions that the psalmists do. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus asked that question. How long, O oh Lord? We see that all over Scripture. Why do, the, why do the evil seem to prosper so much and I don't? You know you're asking those questions to other people. God knows those, those questions. We run to Him out of faith and love. You know, I'm encouraged by this interaction between Abram and God because you can tell a lot about interaction, about what it says about their relationship. See, remember that there was this moral debt that stood between us and God, but He's not an accountant. He does accounting. He's not a banker. He knows about money. He is a loving God. You can tell a lot about a relationship by how they interact. So in the sushi joint, I started looking at all the couples around there. And it, it was really, really exciting. Uh, as I was, some of them were really exciting to watch, and I had to get back to my sermon at some point. You know, there was a, a couple who watched different, the, the, the rude couple. They were watching, towards the end of their time there, they were watching different shows on their different phones on full volume. 
and laughing at different parts of the show, it was very uh, helpful for writing my sermon. And the, then there was the, the older husband and wife who seemed to be a young couple, right? They had that puppy love look in their eyes. And I was so encouraged by that, right? That, that they just loved being together. And then there was the other couple who didn't know each other well, and you could see the awkwardness between them as they were trying to figure out who each other was. You know, we're saved by grace by, through faith, right? We enter into this relationship with a God who made all things, owns all things, sustains all things. He knows us. And we are known by God. And, and there's nothing that, about us that He does not know. And it is a good thing to know and to be known. Because knowing all those things, He saved us anyway. And that's what we have here. So, out of God's grace, His patience as a father... Verses 4 through 5, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. He's going to reconfirm the promises that he has made to, God, uh, to, to Abram that he's going to have an heir from his very own body. His, his household servant, Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus, will inherit then he does something amazing. He, he uses an object lesson of his very creation. And he takes him outside and says, look at all these stars. There, there are no city lights there. right? You can't see you know, Bruton on the horizon with, with the light you know, that ruins everything. There was no street lamp right, to, to ruin his night vision. So look at all these things. So shall your offspring be. There's a play on words here that just as Abram was going to be counted as righteous, what does God say? See if you can count them all. How do we land this plane? Did you know that you can pay to name a star? Did you know this? I found no less than five or six websites that will let you name the same star. Right? <laughs> Love it. Um, basically, they publish your name in a book that no one will ever read. Uh, it has nothing to do with the star's actual scientific name. But you think about the many great millions of stars as Abram looked out. And each, each star had a name, representing uh, as a metaphor of those who would come after him, physically and spiritually. But you know one of them had a name, a very special name, and his name was Jesus. See, one of Abram's descendants, the promised seed, was Jesus himself. And he is and was the light of the world, the creator, the owner, the sustainer of the stars, the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, the very one who was making the promises to Abram would be the very one who hung upon the cross, nailing the record of our debt that we would bear it no more. We have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus. And as he died, as the light of the world hung upon the cross, darkness hung upon creation. This he did for all those who put their faith in him, that they might be reckoned as righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus, not because of anything in us, but because of your loving grace. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.